Hey, this is Matt Robeson with a quick note about today's show. We experienced some unusual recording difficulties because of the way we record this show nowadays over the internet, and we had some unusual weather in the area where Paul was doing the recording and interviewing today's guest. So at certain moments during the show, you're going to hear a little bit of a warbling sound in Paul's voice. We apologize for the low sound quality at those particular moments, and we decided that we wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and we'd put out the show anyway. So we hope you enjoy it despite those little problems. And here is Paul. Welcome to Capital Close Up on WKXL AM FM in Concord, New Hampshire and at 101.9 in beautiful Manchester, New Hampshire. We're podcast wherever it is in the known universe that you get your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please make sure to subscribe and like us, tell your friends and talk about us on your social media. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, and I am delighted to talk with one of the most fascinating people that I've come across in a long time. Uh, Mary Ellen Humphrey is an author, a publisher, um, a, she has been a teacher of writing. She has uh, worked as uh, the a director of economic development in a number of New Hampshire communities, and she served in the New Hampshire legislature as a state representative as, and as a New Hampshire state senator. Um, she will be in Concord at Gibson's Bookstore on Tuesday, July 28th at 6.30 to talk about two of her most recent works, uh, one titled Politics and Poltergeists and the other My Mountain Friend. So we'll be talking about her life, her work, uh, and her books. Mary Ellen Humphrey, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Well, thank you, Paul. What a nice introduction. Gosh, I feel important. <laughs> that was that was fabulous. Well, um, you know, <laughs> so here here here's a question. You 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 uh, lived in New Hampshire for for a long time, and you've since um, moved uh, a little little ways away, and, and you're you're coming back. Um, you you say uh, in some of your material that I've seen that you're now retired. But what does retired mean to you as it an means, author and a publisher? Yeah, it means I'm still working, but I'm doing things I love to do. <laughs> um, I spent my whole adult life in New Hampshire. I moved there when I got married. I was very young, 18. And I left there four years ago when I retired. At 66, I'm, I don't mind saying my age because the reason I'm coming back next week is to celebrate my 70th birthday. And if you read my book, My Mountain Friend, uh, my memoir about hiking Mount Major, uh, reaching the top over a thousand times during the years that I hiked it, you'll understand that it has a special place in my heart. And so I said, well, on my 70th birthday, I'm going home. <laughs> I'm going back to New Hampshire. I'm going to visit my friends, including the mountain. Now, on my 60th birthday, several friends and I went up to, to the top of the mountain in uh, the middle of the night to watch the sunrise. And it was one of my most fabulous birthdays. We did a lot of things that day. We ziplined at, at Cannon Mountain. We we boated across um, 
Winnipesaukee. We had fabulous dinner. We had a toast of champagne. At the end of the day, I was exhausted, <laughs> but I'll never forget it. And so I wanted to do something really nice on my 70th birthday. And I missed so much the hiking that I decided this will be it. I'm going back to New Hampshire, talk to all my friends and hike this mountain. That's a wonderful thing to do. And and we're 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 happy you're we're happy you're coming back. And I'm I really hope that um uh, our listeners will will visit will visit with you at Gibson's. Um you're you're a prolific author. You've written a number of books. One of the things that struck me, and I, and and in our conversation, Mary Ellen, I'm gonna try not to give too much away about the book so that people can buy them and read them. Um, they're, all, your, all your books are available, by the way, uh, uh, as, uh, as Kindle, Kindle books on right. Amazon. Right. Um, and so the, the, books are, the books are available. Uh, and I really encourage folks to, to check out. Um, one of the things that struck me about these two books was how different they were. Um, I'm a a kind of voracious reader, and I often find that uh, authors have a a niche that they fall into or choose, and they keep on plowing the ground uh, with the same seeds over and over again. You know, I'm a rom-com author, or I'm a thriller author, or, um, but I will say that, and we'll talk a little bit more about what's in them, but your books are, are both very, very different. So yes, as every- a writer, mm-hmm. um, wh- where does the inspiration come from? And, and what do you think about this idea that there are some authors who have a niche and others um, who I think, and, and I think it's, it's more rare, um, uh, do not limit themselves to yeah. one genre. I don't think I fit in a genre. I think every book that I've written, and I've got, I don't know, a dozen or so books now, they're all different. And um, I have to feel the book inside me. I have to see it in my head. I have to be motivated to want to write that book. And most of my books have a a specific reader. So, for example, My Mountain Friend, it's really a memoir of healing. It's about how nature helped me to sort through troubling things in my life and come to some conclusions and some healing. And so, that's a book that maybe wouldn't fit everybody. Politics and Poltergeist is completely different. It's a spoof about the New Hampshire State House. It's written sort of for fun, but also, I, I hope and I think from feedback I've got that people who read it kind of get a sense of politics, at least New Hampshire. One of the things I miss is the New Hampshire um, world of politics, because it's very different than New York, where I am now. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of innocent there, even though we have all of these people tracing through our state constantly who want to run for president or whatever. But we have a 400 member house and we have, you know, Anybody, and I kind of joke about it, was said to me when I was there, if you live there long enough, you're probably going to serve in the house, you know, because it pays $100 a year and we need people (laughs) to fill those seats. And I was elected a lot of the things in my books. You know, I was telling someone just the other day, I'm teaching a, a class here at the Art Center on memoir writing, and they were saying, how do you imagine all these things? And I said, well, I don't really have a great imagination. I just have a lot of things I've done (laughs) in my Mm -hmm. life that I can draw on and I can say, you know, this would be a great story. Somebody might 
actually like to hear this. It's not a vanity thing. It's just, um, you know, when you look back over your life, uh, we have unique experiences. And sometimes they're not pleasant when we're going through them. But after we get through and we look back and we have perspective, which is what the hiking book kind of gave me, then you can see where maybe this would help somebody else. So all of my books are different. I have a book that's written about being involved in religious cults. I have a, a book that I wrote after I got done in the Senate about the impeachment trial. I mean, there's it runs the gamut of things. So I have to have fun with it. I have to want to write it. And I hope the people who read my books like it. You know, I don't want to market my books to people who wouldn't like them. I want people to read them who say, I got something out of that. And I enjoyed it. Right. In in terms of your political career, you were you served in the sort of let's say middle to late nineties up to around two thousand, if Correct. I'm recalling correctly. Yes. And so, you were there for the impeachment trial of yes. a New Hampshire Supreme Court justice, which some some of my listeners may remember, and <laughs> younger ones may not. But uh, it was a pretty sen- it was a pretty sensational in in New Hampshire history. Wanna, I, I want to talk just for a moment about uh, what you're calling your hiking book, My Mountain Friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the book, you you talk about your love of Mount Major and you've hiked it, as you say, more than a thousand times. You're going to hike it for your 70th birthday to give yourself a present. Yeah. The book, um, The book combines so many different elements it 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 combines um memoir there are photographs there's poetry there's philosophy a lot of philosophy um sort of a, a really deep take on life lessons um and one of the things that stood out to me was uh just how deeply revealing it was of events in your life that were for 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 there's no other way to say deeply painful experiences and it's a book that's extraordinarily revealing um i cannot it's hard for me to remember reading another memoir that that go that is so open about uh, a life experience. Um, I found that truly remarkable. And I, I'm wondering um, how you feel uh, about um, uh, about being so open about well, in your life that were such a challenge. Well, I, I thought about it a lot. I didn't do it lightly. The book is dedicated to my brother, Dan. He's a year older than I am. And he passed away soon after I got here, which was a really difficult thing to go through, you know, but it kind of stirred in me the memories of our childhood. And of course, when I was 57, and I had the PTSD from the childhood trauma, one of the things that came out in my course of treatment was that I never talked about it. He never told a soul what happened to me, except my grandmother who figured it out from comments I made innocently as a child. And um, the advice I was given was talk about it. (laughs) So now I've told the world about it. But, you know, the the purpose that I did that was not to present myself as some sort of victim. I don't think that at all. It was to say bad things happen. And it's important that we talk about it. It's important that we 
try to help and understand because people are molded and shaped and, and we live our lives a lot of times impacted by these things that have happened to us that were totally out of our control. I had no control as a child to what was happening to me. And, and I think part of the PTSD was that feeling of no control. And, and so hiking the mountain, connecting those dots, figuring out what happened, the thing with my dad, which was probably even more painful, you know, but trying to understand, you know, why things went the way they did. And, you know, when I was in an elected office, I wouldn't have wanted anybody to know <laughs> these things, but I'm 70 years old. And if there's anything in my life that can be helpful to somebody else that they can say, and I often get this, I had a similar experience and you've helped me to see it in a different light, or you've helped me to realize I'm not alone, or you've helped me see how you work through it and how I can work through it. Um, that's my goal with that. It, it is. And I want to say, I put a cautionary in the beginning of the book from the author, because much of the book is fun and it's about hiking and thinking about things. But there is a section that deals with this childhood trauma that might be disturbing for some people. So I, if you want, just skip those pages. <laughs> I don't want anybody to be traumatized by it. But I felt it was important to be honest with it. And mm -hmm. something that I had not done for much of my life was to talk, talk about it at all. I hadn't told anybody. So um, it was healing for me. I'm hoping that that's the case for, for the readers. I don't know. How did you feel, Paul, when you read it? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I, I salute and celebrate your courage as an, as an author and as a person. Um, I think uh, I, I, I totally get that when you, you know, when you get to senior status, which is what, what I'm now calling 70 senior <laughs> status, it's it's a status that you and I share. Um, it's the new middle age. <laughs> it, it, yeah, that's right. It's uh, 70s, the new 30. I mean, you can you can you can sort of uh, you can say to folks, yeah, whatever you think, fine, you can whatever you think about me, fine. But I know who I am. I know where I am. I know what I'm doing. I know why I'm doing it. I know what I want. And whatever you have to say about me, fine, whatever. Um, I don't care anymore about what people say. I mean, it's not exactly true. I mean, if you're a sensitive person, you always I, care you what, what people think and how they feel. One of the things that that what that I found so extraordinary about the book is I really I got I I I, I deeply felt. Um, the link between your healing process and being out in the nature of New yes. Hampshire, being with the rocks and the trails and the trees and the sky and that extraordinary uh, mountain, which, um, you know, which is, uh, it's not a crazy hike yeah, as New Hampshire no. hikes go. No, but it's an it's easy a, hike. Yeah. It's a really gorgeous it's a it's but it's a really fun and 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 gorgeous hike it's you know there are probably some people who hike it every day of their lives I'm, oh yeah there's somebody there are. but i got that yeah. healing i got the i got the healing connection but i want to assure you that i did not i you didn't come across in that book as a victim or somebody who was who was focused on victimhood you came yeah. across as somebody who was who had experienced these really difficult and challenging things and found a path through them, through your, through, through your hikes and 
that that connection came through really powerfully. And I'm hoping people who read the book do not skip any of it, because <laughs> I think that 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 you have a lot to offer uh, the world as a philosopher about life. I thought that um, I think that that you're you're a pretty wise person. And that that came through that came through that book. What when you teach when you teach about writing memoir, mm-hmm. um, uh, I'd be I'm I'm curious to know some of the things you teach, and I'll give you just one little bit of perspective. Is that uh, my dear spouse Pego Horstman Hodes is has been wor- worked on has been working on a book for many years, more than a decade. She wow. went through. And nine revisions. She ended up working with an editor and just recently um, acquired a an agent, a real agent who's going to work with her again on the book and then submit it to publishers. And it went through many, many drafts. Yeah. um, uh, And it's sort of a memoir, but sort of not. I, I, I won't talk about it here, but I'm curious about your process of memoir and what you say to your students about how to write it. Did did all the revelatory passages about what you'd been through come through in an early draft? Was it did it take a while for you to get there? And what do you so, tell your students? So when I'm teaching memoir writing, I've done a couple of them here, one at the library and one at the um Art Center, because the pandemic stopped a lot of that. But uh, I also do a student publishing class and I was telling somebody the other day that my purpose is not to say to people, you're going to write the next great American novel and it's going to earn you thousands of dollars and you can retire. That's not my purpose. I think a lot of us have a story inside that we really want to tell. And so my purpose in in the workshops I do is to help people be able to hold in their hands the book in their heart. And the first class I did at the library, we've now done three memoirs. And what we do as a group is we work together. We do the help put the book together, the editing, the drafting, the designing, and we help these folks actually hold that book. So the last one we've just done, we're going to be announcing it when I get back in August. It's an 84-year-old lady who wrote stories about growing up in rural New York. And she really wants this as a legacy for her family. And it's a wonderful book. And we put everything in it for her. Now, is it going to be an Amazon bestseller? No, it's going to go to her family, to local friends, but that book is important. It's important to her. And so my goal in my writing, because I thought a lot about it, do I want to go, I've got a business background, right? (laughs) I've had businesses, I've worked in economic development. Do I sit down and spend my retirement years trying to build this into some big business? My greatest satisfaction comes from helping other people hold in their hands their book, the book that's in their heart. And so in your wife's case, I'm pretty sure what you're describing is a much more commercial effort. You want it to be something that is going to be more far reaching and perhaps, uh, you know, has legs in the the marketplace. But in my books, I'm not looking at, you know, uh, winning awards and, you know, it's not Pulitzer Prize winning. It's nothing like that. But it's a book that's from my heart. And I think helps certain people who read it. So that's why I I don't really go out and push a lot of marketing and stuff. I'm much more interested in 
helping other people get their books done and in a way that they can be proud of it and hold that book. Your book, Politics and Poltergeist, is really fun. So talk to us a little bit about the genesis of the okay. book, how it, how it evolved and um, how it evolved. I'm curious to know whether you always had envisioned it as kind of a fantasy and thriller. Well, this book, the first draft of this book was in 2012. Uh, every year I do a project called NaNoWriMo. I don't know if your readers, your listeners have heard of it, but it's where in the month of November, you do a first draft of a book. And I've done it for, I think, 15 years. So in 2012, Politics and Poltergeists, which was originally called the Statehouse Mystery because I didn't have a, a, a name for it yet, I decided to do something different. And I had just read Stephen King's writing book on, on writing. And he said, take a setting that you know. Well, I knew the Statehouse. Take characters that you know. Well, they're in there. <laughs> and let them tell the story. And I knew that I wanted to do something fun because politics can probably turn people off. And I wanted it to be something that would, would kind of enlighten you to the world of politics, but in a fun way. So think of, think of uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, in this case, Mrs. Brown, <laughs> goes to Concord, meets Murder, She Wrote, right? Because there's a, a murder in here. And then add this element of Rod Serling, you know, the kind of the, the ghost, the <laughs> poltergeist. And I thought this would be a lot of fun. So that's what I did. So for the first draft of this book, I just did my nano project. And at the end of it, I knew I had the pie timber, the, the parts that I needed to make it into a book. And then from there, from 2012 until about a year or so ago, I did some work on it, revising it, trying to make it you know, be a better read and all the rest of it. But the gist of the book was there. And the fun part about it was, it was a whodunit, right? So when I got to the end of the book, and it's like November 28th, and I got to finish this, I'd have no idea who did it. <laughs> so I said to myself, well, Stephen King said, trust your characters. So I'm just going to keep typing. And I was actually surprised myself by the ending. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful so but you know that that's that's really that's that that's so interesting to hear because i had as a reader i had no idea i mean i can often in a thriller or a mystery i can often figure out early pretty early on okay who who done it and what's it going to take to get there and and i'm you know it's always nice to have pleasant surprises but i had i had no idea um uh because there 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 wasn't just one unfortunate passing there were two um which really which am amplified amplified the the mystery um uh, and that was a wonderful part the the other part that struck me about the book was if i was at all interested in politics if if yeah. if i uh, <laughs> and i would say that that this book uh, even without the fantastical elements even without the thriller might be the best uh, primer on what it means to be a public servant um, and to run for office and then be in office, it might be the best primer I've ever written. Now, when I went to Congress 
They gave me all kinds of material about um, all kinds of things. I mean, I I was overloaded. You know, you drink through a fire hose mm-hmm. yes. when you when you first get there. It's like, oh my goodness and and you spend the first six months saying how did i get here and then you spend the rest of your time saying how did they get here um but but i never had any kind of introduction to what really goes on um to help make legislation happen and the give and take and the thrust and jostle i called it (laughs) of politics and your book is both it's it's both fun but it's also quite sobering um uh and and you know you end up with um kind of a rule book for for political for political life um let me let me say something here because in 1994 i was first elected and Essentially, what I write is about myself. So, you know, I went down to the town hall and yeah, yeah, all that's true. (laughs) But when I got there, I had no clue. I wasn't I had never done anything political. So um, the first year I spent saying to all of my colleagues, where's the rule book? I don't understand this place. Somebody needs to write a rule book. (laughs) And at the end of the first term, and I had no intention of going back, but they all talked me into it. I wrote this little pamphlet called the rule book. And I gave it to my colleagues on the EDNA committee and everybody liked it. So I ended up giving it to a bunch of people. And the um, House Speaker's office asked me, could they make copies of it? So fast forward, you know, 15 or 20 years uh, when I'm working in Durham and we have a, a, a meet and greet for the newly elected legislators. And I overhear one of them saying to the other one, they gave us this really neat rule book. <laughs> and I said, I wrote that. <laughs> and somebody had said to me back at the time when I handed it out, they said, they'll forget who you are. They will never know who you are, but they'll remember this rule book. <laughs> yeah, well, it, the rule. So, I mean, I, let me just ask the, the 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 rules of politics are are printed out in the back of the book for both the New Hampshire House and the New Hampshire State Senate. They're 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 a little different. Um, they're a little different because. You know, in the in the New Hampshire House, as you point out in your book, we have the fourth largest legislative body in the English speaking world. Everybody, you know, there's a everybody's a state legislature legislator. Um, And what what I always appreciated about about serving um, as a congressman in New Hampshire was. Uh, even the today people say gee i know your face from somewhere and i i remember your name but i just i just don't know know where and I, and i and and there are most people think that they remember me from being a state legislator and i say actually i was a united states congressman and most often people look at me and say as if well there's really no difference i mean you know okay okay you were a congressman okay i mean congressman state senator state legislator you know in new hampshire everybody everybody's in politics so so it it really it really doesn't matter people expect you to be an ordinary good citizen who will listen uh-huh. and do whatever you're doing. Um, uh, it, so it's it's a very interesting place to practice politics. And it really is open. You know, it's open sesame. I mean, it's true. <laughs> anybody in New Hampshire can run and anybody yeah. can get elected. 
it's a it's a fascinating study of human nature. I I was just and I had a journal. I always kept keep a journal, which is probably why I can write about all this stuff because I wrote it all down. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I remember uh, Sylvia Hawley. I think she's passed away now, but she sat beside me in the committee when I first got there, and she looked at my in front of me with my journal where I was keeping my notes. And she said, put that away. You're going to get in trouble. (laughs) And I thought, well, I'll I'll put it in my purse, but I'm still going to write in it (laughs) because that's, that's my, uh, that's my way of making sense of the world is writing things down and trying to figure it out and remember it and so forth. But when you serve in the house, she said this to me the first time she said, it's like a college degree. You're going to learn more than you ever did. And I did learn more than I ever did in any, any four-year college degree, because you're you're studying the dynamics of how things are done in government. You know, it isn't a fast moving, <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't blink and miss it. It's slow moving. And so you get to see the details of how these things happen. Um, I, I put in the book things like one of the things that I did when I was in my second term in the house, one of my mentor friends said, and I, and I was kind of a nonpartisan person. I, I really didn't care party stuff. I had friends on both sides. And one of my mentors was in the other party and and was kind of humorous. But anyway, he took me aside and he said, you need to sponsor something. And I said, no, there's a thousand or more bills every year. I don't want to add to that. (laughs) And he said, no, it's important. You need to sponsor something, find something important to you and, and do something. So I thought about it. My name was Brown at the time. And my credit report was always messed up with somebody else's stuff on it. So I sponsored a bill. This was back before the internet and all that stuff. And I said, before any of the three credit bureaus can put anything bad on your report, they got to send you a postcard so you can tell whether it's right or not. And that way they're selling your information for money. They they need to make sure it's right. And uh, the house passed that through like nothing. It was like everybody came out with their own story. So I, I guess I hit a nerve. But when I got to the Senate, And I went to see my senator. He literally crossed his arms and put his feet on his desk and said, you're too late. The lobbyists have been here. (laughs) Well, that was a really rude awakening for me. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) And so uh, in the end, I won't go through the whole story, but in the end, it failed in the Senate. But uh, I was called into the chairman's office and this mentor said to me, they're going to offer you a deal. And I said, why would they do that? I, the bill's dead. And he said, because they don't want it to come back. It's, it's an important issue and it's going to be other states will pick it up. And, you know, so they're going to offer you something, whatever it is. He said, take it. And I was like, well, I don't know about that, you know. But anyway, I took his advice. And what they did is they offered to give anybody who was turned down for credit a free credit report, because before that you had to pay for it. And once a year, you could request a copy. So I like to tell people who, <laughs> who now enjoy that privilege that started with me way back in little New Hampshire. <laughs> so you yeah, never know. You, know yeah. you, you, you never know. Little New Hampshire has an outsized influence in politics, as yes. you know. Yes. And um, when I went to Congress, I took with me a bill that started in New Hampshire, in the New Hampshire House called Michelle's Law, about um, health insurance for students who got sick while they were in school and um, needed to stay on their parents' policy. But at the time, this was before Obamacare, um, they uh, got bounced off their parents' policies if they took a leave of absence. And that bill, that law, Michelle's Law, originated in New Hampshire. I took it to the U.S. Congress. George Bush was president. I got a Republican co-sponsor. We worked both sides of the aisle. George Bush signed it into law 
and it became the basis in Obamacare for um, allowing young people up to 25 yep. to stay on their uh, uh, parents' policy. So there, you never, you ne- you, never know. it's true, you never know. <laughs> yeah. So I want to talk, I want to, I want to get, hear your perspective because of your experience, wisdom, uh, and and the excellent rules you set out for the practice of politics. Um, one one of the rules, and I, I'm just going to focus. I want to focus on one of the rules for the New Hampshire House is try not to get too cynical. One of the rules for the New Hampshire State Senate, and this is uh, I'm I'm, I'm going to this is spoiler alert. I'm going to give away the first rule because it's important. It says the best politics is the politics of hope and vision. Another word for this is leadership. Legislators tend to think in terms of this session, we need to think long term. So it, the, your rules got me thinking about the current state of our politics uh, um, in terms of try not to get too cynical and hope and vision and leadership are what are important. And I'm, I'm just curious about your thoughts on on where we are now, where uh, because politics in 2022 um, is seems like it could produce an awful lot of cynicism in terms of the extreme partisanship and tribalism um, yeah. uh, that that we're experiencing, and also, I mean, given the national the national mood. Um, which is kind of sour on politics, and and people have, uh, frankly, um, uh, you know, we're we're our democracy is 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 challenged. What, losing, what are your thoughts about hope. your rules, yeah. your experience, and where we are now? Well, one of the things that is very troubling is the um, the vision. You know, it, even when I was in Concord, we always would say, "Oh, it's worse than ever." It was nothing like this. <laughs> and, you know, there's always going to be the party side and par- parties exist for a reason that, you know, all that sort of stuff. But but now it's become personal. It's become if you don't think like me, I hate you. I mean, it's really and it's dividing families. It's dividing communities. You know, you can be in a group and somebody will say something and everyone else will look at them like, you know, they got horns. You know, we've become so um, into our own thoughts that we aren't seeing other people's perspectives. So I, as I watched, the, and I've been watching the, all the um, con, um, January 6 hearings, I, I find that fascinating. When we had the impeachment trial, I was glued to that. I was just, <laughs> to me, that was fascinating. Some people might go, oh my gosh, you know, why do you care? But I care because I remember, I'm going to be 70 next week. I remember Richard Nixon and what he did to me seems like hardly anything compared to what we're looking at today. And his party took him aside and said, for the good of the country, you need to leave. And he had the character to do that. I have seen close elections. I'm thinking about when Al Gore and the hanging chads and all this. And I remember him saying, yes, I could probably fight this, but in the interest of the country, I'm going to step back and, and, and let us move forward. And we don't seem to be of the same character today. We seem to be, it's a, it's all, all right to be about yourself. It's all right to be selfish. And that starts with leadership. That starts with the people at the top who kind of emulate that sort of thing. So as a citizen, 
what can we do? What, how can we help solve this? Because a lot of it is because of the internet and conspiracy theories and all these. And I, I honestly think, believe some of it is deliberate attempts to divide us through propaganda, planting crazy stories and dividing people. And I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. A lot of this started in the 90s and early 2000s with emails. I remember getting emails that were supposed to be jokes, but they were making fun of the president, whoever it was at the time. And it didn't matter to me which president it was. I would always send it back and say, we need to respect the president. You don't have to like him, but, you know, respect him. And I could see this kind of churning in the background of uh, a divisive kind of spreading of information. And then, of course, we got into the crazy stuff, the conspiracies and, oh, my gosh, all this other stuff. Part of that distracts us. It distracts us from the really important issues like, you know, climate change, uh, the, the how do we handle immigration? Healthcare really needs a lot more work. There's, there's things that we need to be doing, but we're so distracted by this noise, by this stuff that's going on that we're really not accomplishing the things we do. And I think part of the reason people are so disheartened is because it feels like the wheels of our government are not working. It feels like very little effort gets done. Doesn't matter who's in there. One party sabotages the other. The minute someone's elected, it's somebody saying we're going to make sure they never get anything, or we're going to, you know, roll over them or whatever. There doesn't seem to be a, a, a cordial sense of let's sit down and work this out. And when I was in the House and Senate in New Hampshire, again, it's a citizen legislature. You're paid 100 bucks a year. You don't go there, at least I didn't, thinking I got to keep this job. <laughs> I didn't need to keep this job. I need to get back to my life. So, so I wanted to do things together. Let, you know, I may not agree with the other party's perspective, but they probably have something behind it that's important to listen to. They may not agree with what I thought, but they might listen to me if I had an important piece. And why we can't sit down and sit at a table and take the best of both pieces and come up with something, at least move us forward. Now, I learned when I was first elected that the word compromise was a very bad word. I never knew that till I got into politics. I, I didn't know that was, I thought that was the goal. <laughs> but no, it wasn't because we became so poisoned on hating the other, you know, that we, we said compromise is giving up your values. That is, that's the wrong way to look at it. We do need to compromise. We need to be able to say, okay, we might not get everything we want. And that's in this book, the incremental progress that we can make. We might only get a small step, but we build on that. And next year we come back and we've looked at it. We've seen what works and what doesn't. We improve it and we make it better. And so I think if people could see actual accomplishments and if the leaders of our country would stop this bickering and partisan stuff, once the elections over, work together. And I want to say something about women in politics, because I observed this. I don't know if I put it in the book. I can't remember. But during my tenure, we had the first female governor, Jean Shaheen. We had the first female speaker of the House, Donna Sytek. And, and then Bev Hollingsworth became president of the Senate. And we had this female leadership. And I really, I'm an overthinker. So people say you shouldn't overthink. Uh, I like to. <laughs> and so I look at all this and I, I realize that I have a tremendous respect for, these are different parties. Donner's a Republican, Jean's a, a Democrat, and Bev was a, a Democrat. So it has nothing to do with party. It has to do with the style of leadership. And the first women who are elected to these higher positions 
they have to emulate a masculine style of leadership, which is, you know, I'm right and I'm in charge and so forth. But once that's been done, you watch the women who come afterwards and they are more authentically female in their leadership. And this is what I mean by that. As moms, as teachers, as whatever women do, we sit down with whoever's fighting and we say, let's work this out. Let's, let's all sit around. It's a circular form of leadership. It's not top-down orders. It's what can we do to make this work? And I'm very strongly, I get some hate mail for this, but I really feel it's very important that there's more female style leadership, not take over and become the dominant, but be equally represented so that we have a government where we are working together and we start to make progress. The very nature of politics is to prevent that. Oops. <laughs> this is Capital Close Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We have been talking with author, publisher, economic development guru, and former uh, state rep and New Hampshire State Senator Mary Ellen Humphrey. She will be in Concord at Gibson's on Tuesday, July 28th at 6.30, talking about her most recent books, Politics and Poltergeists and My Mountain Friend. I commend both books. Mary Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on Capital Close-Up. Be well. You're a really wise woman. Thank you so much, Paul. I totally enjoyed it. As you can tell, I can go on forever. (laughs) 